Right, if you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, it's great to know that we have sang the gospel and prayed the gospel and even already proclaimed the gospel together today. And so I just can't mess this up, really. Praise the Lord. Thank you for everybody that did that. But we do want to turn uh, now to our study in the gospel of Matthew. Uh, we are seeing what it looks like through this really early biography of Jesus what it means for us to be his followers. And this morning we're going to come to a text that actually I preached on just a year ago. It was in a different series that we were doing, and so I've, I tried to make it different because I know all of y'all like have that so fresh in your memory and had it memorized, and there's no way I could have just came and preached the same sermon and you wouldn't have known if I wouldn't have told you. But anyway, I'm telling you. And I'm going to do it a little different, though, today. So if it, if it feels like a, a different sort of style of interpretation and application, that's partially why. I also want to let everybody know that next week we're going to call time out from going through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to take several weeks just going back to the basics of the heart and the vision of our church. And I'm really excited about this. And, and if anybody, you know, is new here... This is a great way for you to just feel like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm just right in the middle of everything. So we're going to go back to the start and just lay out those basics over several weeks. And so I'm really looking forward to that. But this morning, Matthew 20, 29 through 34, if you would stand out of honor for the Word of God. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed them. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. As we often say, your word is truth. Sanctify us in your truth. We come now, Holy Spirit, completely dependent on your work to illumine, to spotlight the glory of the gospel in this word and to pierce in our hearts below the surface of merely our behaviors, but to the depths of our doubts and our desires, our intentions, our motives, our will. And we're trusting you to do this with your comforting yet challenging hand. We pray now, God, that you would help us to be here listening as apprentices of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to know what it looks like to be your followers in everyday life. To know what it looks like to live our lives as if you were living them in our shoes. But help us to not do that in our own power, but in yours. In the power of your grace, may you strengthen us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, sometimes we'll ask our kids if we're going to be out of town or, you know, recently we were on this sabbatical, where would you like to go spend the weekend? What would you like to do or who would you like to do it with? 
And there's some different options that sometimes come into play. But one of those options is their great aunt. Now, I don't know if when many of you guys hear the word great aunt, you think, wow, that's really where I want to be. When I think of my great aunt growing up, I think I'm going to be eating pinto beans and cornbread every single time, right? And I'm going to be stuck outside, you know, walking around by myself until my parents come back and pick me up. And I love my great aunt, right? But you would miss out if you did not understand who their great aunt is. Some of y'all know their great aunt, my aunt Meg. She was at the beginning of the start of this church. She was here helping us get things off the ground. And she is probably one of the most fun people that you would ever meet in your life. And so Josiah is at least one of our kids. They've all got this. He's really honed in on this reality that I could say, Dad, I want to go to the movies. Okay, you could go to the movies. Dad, I want to go out to eat. Okay, we could go out to eat. But if you say, I want to go stay with Aunt Meg, as, as boring as that might sound on the surface, as irrelevant you are opening this gateway to greatness. <laughs> You're not exactly sure where it's going to go or what's going to happen, but you are guaranteed to have a great time. And not just because you're going to be doing fun things, but because she is such just a fun person. The moral of the story is, is choose the Meg. Make the Meg decision. You will not regret it. We might underestimate a great aunt. But I think when we come to our text today, what we need to realize is we underestimate something that's even greater. And that's this word, mercy. I mean, if we're honest, many of us that have been around the church or in the church, when we hear the word mercy, we might kind of do an inward eye roll. We might even think, like, I want to hear a sermon on mercy. Okay, yeah, I've kind of been there and done that. It can seem old. It can seem irrelevant. It can seem simplistic. We can look at our lives. We can look at our world. And we think, I think I would just rather choose to manage my life, or as it were, my weekend, my day on my own. And some of us, if we're honest, somewhere along the way, have learned to not even trust mercy. You may think relying on mercy makes you weak. Because in a way it is, and it does. But what if we're missing out on the miraculous meaning that mercy can give us in our lives? What if maybe we find ourselves today in the shoes of these beggars... One of them, at least, we know is named Bartimaeus from the other gospel accounts. We might find ourselves experiencing mercy as something that isn't a, a cliche Christian word, but something that actually does bring meaning to the middle of the mess that we often call life. You know, some people say that mercy is at the center of this gospel, this gospel of Matthew, the mercy of the incarnation where Mary is told you will have a child and he will save your, his people from their sins. Or even showed how Joseph showed mercy uh, to Mary. That's the language that Matthew uses. You know, he's so confused about what's going on. He's been told your wife is pregnant. It's not your child, but don't worry. There's not been anything that's gone on. And instead of him just walking away, the text says he, he, he stepped into the mess through mercy. 
And we come, we could do this all through the gospel. We come to that text that is the name of our church, Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus calls all the tax collectors and sinners, all the outsiders and all the outcasts to the table so that they might know him and the love of his people. And he says to those Pharisees that would look on with condemning eyes, do you not know that I desire mercy? Ultimately, this mercy will lead Jesus to the cross where we are forgiven, healed, and delivered in a resurrection that makes all things new. And in our text today, we see really this final scene before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem as he makes that trek. Not, so it's not a coincidence, that it would be a story of mercy. And if we want to find meaning in our messy lives, then it will not come by clinging to our own management of the situation. It will come by clinging and crying out to the mercy of our Savior. So how do we do that this morning? I'm going to give us a few questions that I've shared with some of you others in other settings and trainings. And so this will be familiar to you in some ways. But it's good for us all to be here together in this text. So the first thing, we're led to the mercy of Christ, to the meaning that mercy gives us by acknowledging our location. Notice again verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great cloud, crowd, not cloud, a great crowd followed them. The, the, the king, Jesus, the king of mercy shows up here and what we need to notice is kind of a surprising place. Now we hear this word Jericho. And if you're not used to reading your Bible this way, we don't need to just skip over little things like that. Right? Have we heard the word Jericho in the Bible before? Yes. We remember and the walls came a-tumbling down. Right? This is Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Right? This is, a, this is a place of great history. This is a place of great hope. And in that day and time, we, we, we sort of read in the history that maybe Jericho had become like this sort of tourist city, kind of on the outskirts, on the way to Jerusalem, that was pretty and polished, full of history, full of hope. And Jesus is going through there. He's leaving there on his way to Jerusalem. And notice there's this great crowd that's with him. Now what comes with a great crowd? There's intensity. There's excitement. There's hope. There's optimism. And they're marching to Jerusalem. And they think, as we're going to see, they're marching there because Jesus is going to be crowned as the Messiah. He's going to take the throne. He's going to make all things right in Israel and before even Rome. So we got to see that this is the scene, right? Excitement, joy, hope in this beautiful place in this beautiful history. In verse 30, notice, and behold. Time out. Break the fourth wall. Behold. This is it. This is important. The writer the saying, see, do you see this? Here everybody goes, looking good, on the way. Now stop and look. There's somebody else here. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. Well, man, that's, that's kind of a downer, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're trying to have a great time here. We're on our way. And then here's these two guys that are broken, blind, needy, and begging. I, I remember getting to go, go to San Diego one time. It's just, it's just a beautiful city, right? And you're, it's all this, this 
this palm trees and sun and weather, and then you just get to this one street in the city, and it's just almost like a never-ending homeless camp. And if you were in the flesh and not in the spirit, or if you were not a follower of Jesus, or even if you were, you can imagine this impulse of like, should I be enjoying myself? I'm on my way to this restaurant. This is, this is similar to what's happening here. And so what, does the, what do the crowds do? They will tell them to be quiet, ultimately. These two blind beggars remind people of sin. They remind people that there's suffering in the world. They remind people that there's an enemy. They remind people of real life. They remind people that there's a lot of things in the world that just feel helpless. But they hear Jesus is passing by. And so they show up. And what do they do? Verse 30 tells us, they cry out, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on us, son of David. You know, these guys might have could have just hid. And the crowd is going to think they should hide, right? They shouldn't make their location known. Jesus has important things to do. He's on his way to an important place. We're in Jericho after all. And how do we know that there would be this expectation that we might hide? I've already kind of seen it, said it, but let's see it in the text. Verse 31, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. Be quiet. Don't be so needy. Don't distract Jesus. This is so sad. But I wonder if we've done something like that in our hearts before. I wonder if we've said that to ourselves before. Just be quiet. It's a challenge to locate yourself in the middle of a world that does not want us to do that. But they cry out all the more, the text says. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They are willing to be needy in a crowd and in a place that just wants them to be quiet. Now we're going to see these, these blind beggars are not the main character in this story, but it's important for us to see that they will not let cultural location or personal intimidation keep them from crying out to Jesus. They will not. They will not let an outer voice, as it were, drive them into, drive them away from their need. As, as the great prophet Michael Scott has taught us, uh, there's a show called The Office, not a recommendation. Uh, he gets GPS, right, in his car. And they're, they're wrestling with this battle between technology and, and human interest. And even if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can understand this. So some of us in here have been frustrated with technology. And so he's told that technology is better than a personal touch of doing sales. And so to test this, he blindly follows his GPS system in his car. But he follows it like, an, like a foolish person. 
Very exact, very literal, with no sort of human wisdom, and he drives his car directly into a lake or a pond. And his takeaway from this is victory. I have proven that we cannot trust this robotic technology in the world. Now, as foolish as that sounds, just just humor me for a second. If we're not careful, that's how we live our lives. We have this outside voice or these outside voices that we are just listening to to tell us this is where you are, this is what you should do, this is when you should be quiet, you need to look good, you need to have it all together, you don't need to be needy, you don't need to ask for help. We live in America, this is not the place for that. Your life should just be one constant vacation or an interlude until you get to the next one. And we need to declare that we are not going to listen to those voices. But we are going to learn to let the voice of God help us locate where we are. This is so important. But it may be an upstream discipline for us. You may have came from a family. You may have came from a church. You might feel like that because of this church sometimes. You may have a workplace. You you live in a culture, whether you realize it, where the water we drink is to not cry out, have mercy. Have mercy. What may be familiar to some of you, and this is is the first of three questions that we're going to point out today. And the first question is, is the first question of the whole Bible. The first question of the Old Testament is this question, where are you? God knew where Adam and Eve were at. He knows where we're at. Where you're hiding in your sin, your suffering, your shame, that bondage, that narrative, that lie, that addiction, that affliction, that darkness, that demonic stronghold in your life, He knows that He wants you to locate yourself where you are. Where are you? And you might be like the crowd. I don't want to go there. I want to follow Jesus in the crowd, but I don't want to find myself in the beggar on the roadside. We we can do this in a few ways. A few ways that might be helpful to do this. This is new to you. Sometimes, if you're like, I don't know, is you might pay attention to just your body. Right? I hope that doesn't sound weird, but like, man, I just, I feel this adrenaline going, right? I'm about to punch another hole in the sheetrock, you know? I'm about to throw a glass at the wall or whatever. Like, I mean, God already knows it. Just pay attention to it, right? Just bring it to Him. You might feel like super tense in your neck, your shoulders, this anxiety that your heart's beating a thousand miles a minute in your chest. If you're going to get to mercy, this is what we're talking about. Remember our main points. How do we find mercy? How do we get to that mercy that's going to bring our lives more meaningfully into connection with Jesus? Is is we're going to have to pay attention and pull that thread. It might be in your feelings or your emotions. 
right? That's new for some of us or a challenge for some of us, but you might, you might, where am I? Right? Where were Adam and Eve? They were in guilt, fear, and shame. We don't have time to go uh, through that text this morning, but just go back and look, right? They're in guilt, fear, and shame. So you might just be like, I'm just, I can do those three. Am I feeling any of those things? But it might be something else. I might feel frustrated. I might feel frazzled. I might feel frantic. And other words that start with FR, evidently, that are on my mind. But you, you got to bring, you got to say it. This is where I am. To pull the thread to mercy. And the last one might be your thoughts. Uh, one of my friends calls it like the plot lines that your life is running on. So often, I mean, like right now, some of you might not even be here right now. That's okay, just so you know. But you just got to own that, right? Like, I'm, I'm already tomorrow. I got so much to get done this week. Or I'm last week in this conversation I had with this person. Or I'm last night in this fight I had with my roommate or my spouse. But we locate ourselves to get ourselves in the path of experiencing Jesus' mercy. So let's try it. We, we like to participate around here. So just pause for a second if it helps you to close your eyes. And God's coming to you right now like Jesus came to these beggars and like God came to our, the first, our first parents. And he's saying, where are you? Take a moment and try to tell him. It might sound like, I'm afraid, or I'm just angry, or whatever your behavior, your emotions, your thoughts, your body, just tell them. All right, I'm not really giving you enough time, but what does Jesus do with his disciples and his crowd? He takes them into a messy situation so that he might magnify his mercy, right? So we're willing to do that with each other right now, right? This crowd doesn't want to go there. This crowd might not want to go there. I don't know. I don't want to go there. Here we go. Jesus says, stop. We're stopping the train to Jerusalem to see this need of mercy. But also, not only we're led to mercy by acknowledging our location, but we've got, to, we've got to notice our motivation. So notice verses 32 and 33 here. Jesus asked them a seemingly obvious question. But it's, it's anything but, but, but weak and, and empty. He, it says, And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? Wow. Get in the story right now, and Jesus comes to you and says, What do you want me to do for you? Now, how we answer that question is going to tell a lot about the state of our hearts. It may be a question that a lot of us don't know the answer to. Again, there's mercy for that, but what do you want? Now, why might this question not be obvious? Uh, again, we have, we have lots of friends that are homeless in the area, many people that have come, had meals with us, and, and with you guys too, that, you know, you're like, see them down there by Walmart at the sec 
corner section and we're like, hey, there's oh, I won't name their names. There's so-and-so, there's so-and-so, right? What, what are they usually asking for? And we love them deeply. Money. Oh, what do you think these two blind beggars are usually asking for when people walk by? Money, right? Something to eat. And since Jesus is a king, I mean, you know, we hear this Lord, Son of David thing, and we take it somewhere super theological, which we should, you know, the divinity and humanity of Jesus and all these things, that's good, but likely these old boys, they, they were just thinking, this is the Messiah, right? He's on his way to get crowned. Maybe he can give us more money. This is just one possibility. I'm not the only one that thinks this. We'll see it changes. They're after more. But at certain point, when you're a blind beggar, what do you just want to do? You just want to survive, don't you? You're not looking to heal. You're looking to deal. That makes sense? There's my neat little rhyme, right? You're not looking to heal, get healed. You're just looking to deal with the day. I wonder how many of us in here are like that. I ain't trying to get healed, Jesus. But, but can I, you just help me deal with the day? So he asks the question. He wants to clarify it. He knows what they really, really want deep down. Just like he knows in your heart, even if you don't know it, he knows what you really desire. If you're God's child, the Spirit of God lives within you. It's crying out for good things, for healing things, for hopeful things. He wants to hear it from them, and they say it. They speak their deepest desire to Him, and they say, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Oh, man, we read over this so quickly. What a risky thing to ask for. It takes a lot of courage to ask for your deepest desires. To notice that and to name that. It's risky. It takes faith. But this is a desire that you can live off of. You see, a lot of us live off of lesser desires. It's why our lives are so void at times of meaning and a sense of mission. Because we're not willing to go to Jesus for that deep mercy. That real deep mercy where we say, I no longer want to just deal, I want to be healed. I want to be changed. I want to be set free. It's an ask that takes major mercy. Uh, to, to go to another great prophet of our day, Jerry Seinfeld. He was in, a, in an interview with someone, and, and it, was, it was with another comedian that was trying to make it in, the, wor in the, the comedic world. I'm trying to spare you the details and get to the main story. And the guy was just like, how do you do this? Because it's, it's just so hard. And, you know, we see all these other people out here doing other professions and they're like actually making money and they're not having to worry, you know, deal with the ridicule of other people or hecklers and all of this stuff. And, and you know, you have to worry about what your family thinks. And, 
And, and through this, it's interesting, he's just like scratching his head like, what are you talking about? And, and then he tells this story that makes sense of it. Uh, it says, the legendary Glenn Miller Orchestra, follow me here, is forced to land in a field on a stormy, snowy winter night. So there's this band, right? They're artists, that's important. This orchestra. And as a result, though, that they have to, to land in this field, they have to walk to their gig through this cold, wet, slushy snow, carrying all their heavy instruments. But as they walk through the field, they come across this little cabin. And they look through the window. And in the window, they see this picturesque scene of a family enjoying each other's company. A husband and a wife, along with their two children, they're warmed by a fire, and they're sitting by a table eating, smiling, and laughing. And the performers just stand there drenched in the cold, holding their instruments, shivering. And then one guy turns to another and confusedly says, How do people live like that? Do you get it? When your desires, <laughs> they want to play music, right? They're not looking through the window on somebody else's life and saying, man, why do we do what we do? That sure would be nice. Now you could flip it around, right? It's not either or, because I know how we think. The family could be looking out the window at the musicians and saying, how do, how do people live like that? Here's the thing. What is the desire that God has given you? Where does He want you to cry out from your heart for the mercy to quit just living a life that's dealing with things and a life that taps your desires into His mercy? Oh, there's so much we could talk about that, but how many of us as Christians, if we're honest, somewhere along the way, we found ourselves like the psalmist in Psalm 73, looking on a world who's not following Jesus, and we're like, man, it sure would be nice to have all that money. It sure would be nice to have all that free time. It sure would be nice... If that's where our hearts are at, we need to bring that to Jesus. And we're going to see in a second how we can do that and don't have to be afraid. But we've got to do these things. It may not be pretty at first. There's a cynical beggar in all of us who just wants to deal with life. We want our drug of choice. How many of us respect the person by the side of the road that says, need money for alcohol? Right? You've seen somebody try that before, right? We'll, we'll work for drugs. And you're just like, all right, I'm going to give that guy some money. He's being honest, right? And we kind of laugh. Well, be that guy right now or gal before the Lord. What are you really wanting? I mean, quit, quit playing games. What do you really want? What are you wanting from Jesus? I mean, if you're honest, you, you just want Him to help you deal with life. 
What's your drug of choice? Is it, again, we go to these classic things. Is it, is it control? I think Jesus will give me a little bit more control in life. Is it approval? Maybe a little bit more approval, have some more friends. Is it comfort? Is it performance? Is it power? And what you need to believe is that through the gospel, the Holy Spirit has better things for you and in your heart. When the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart, it's not saying delight yourself in the world, Lord and you'll walk out in the garage, it'll be that car you always wanted. Right? It's saying He's going to give you the desires. He's going to change your desires. Right? Sometimes we have this, this wrong understanding. You know, The Bible does say in Jeremiah that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Guess what though? That is not the heart that's been made new by the Spirit. Cry out your desires. Wrestle in the mixed motives. And we must stop apologizing for being so needy before our God who loves us. I was talking with someone about this the other day. Can you imagine if you had a child, and some of you are children, can you imagine, this might have been your experience, you being in your bedroom, broken and sad and needy and saying, I don't want to go tell mom and dad they've got too much going on. Now if you're a parent... You're like, oh man, that would break my heart to know my children would not come and share with me their confusion and their need and their brokenness. And we can do the same thing. You see, Christianity is not made to be a respectable religion. Hear me out on this. It's, a, it's, it's, it's truth, so I'm not saying it's one religion among others, but I'm just saying it's full of people who yell for mercy. Uh, one writer on this, as I was studying this, who are the people who impress Jesus in the Gospels? Just go read them. Is it the professional religious people who have all the answers and, and follow all the protocol? No, it's, the, it's kind of the crazy folks, right? It's kind of, this is the people who are like, help me, Jesus, be quiet. No, help me, Jesus. It's, it's the, the woman, where Je- the Gentile woman where Jesus is like, yeah, I, you know, the, the food is for the children, talking about the Israelites, not the dogs, and we're kind of surprised what's going on here. We see it, and she's like, yeah, but Jesus, even the dogs get the scraps from the table. And Jesus is what, like, that's my kind of woman right there, Right? It's the persistent widow. It's this brash party in Matthew's house. And, and, and we, and again, I'm, I, I have, I have, I, my personality comes across way different preaching than it does in real life. Especially if you know me outside of churchly settings. But like we have this, I think, approach to prayer sometimes where it's like, Oh Jesus, if, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like a moment of your time. I don't want to ask too much, you know, and I'm only going to ask once, and then I'm going to say, not, your, not my will, but your will be done. I want to be respectful. And old boys here just screaming out, no matter how many times they say to be quiet, have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. Maybe that's what mat- maturity looks like. Well, I want to preach a whole sermon on that, but I'm not going to. But question two is, what do you, the first question in the New Testament, 
Back in John 1, what do you seek? What do you want? Where are you? What do you seek? And you can think of this in a few ways. Your desires, your expectations, or your ambitions. So if the, the where are you is B-E-T, and this one is D-E-A. Tried to make them work with some other acronyms in the world there that might help you remember. This is personal. And we led to the third one. We've got to go to get to the Lord's table, the best part of our service. We're led to mercy's meaning not only by location and the motivation, but our identification. So this is the third question we'll talk about. Just go ahead and front load it here. So where, do you say, who do you say, where are you? Who do you say that I am? Or what do you seek? And the third one is the question all throughout the Bible is, who do you say that I am? I just said that, didn't I? But who do you say that I am? And we see who Jesus is in this text. He's the main character here. This isn't even primarily like a picture of what good faith looks like. There is some picturesque things here. It's about him. What does he do? He's on the way to die for the sins of the world. He's taking this crowd and he stops. Is that not amazing? Like he stops. His followers want him to, to keep going and tell these folks to shut up. And Jesus stops. Isn't it so sad when that's how we treat each other as disciples? We do that. There's some broken people in this world, probably surrounding this church gathering this morning, and they have heard or experienced in one way or another the people of God tell them to, to calm down. And we've, we drive past people, we organize our lives around people, but Jesus stops. And He stops for you. He ain't in no hurry. Now we are at times, right? But he's not. And he asked. Don't you want sometimes somebody just to ask you a question? I mean, he already knew the answer. He knew what they wanted. But he dignified their presence by asking, what do you want me to do for you? A lot of people, what do they want to do? They want to make assumptions about us. Oh, I know they just want that for this. We want to accuse people, or this is a big one, we want to appease people, right? Just get it over with. But Jesus doesn't stop to accuse, to assume, or to appease. He really asks them, what do you want? And then we see in the text here, He has pity. It says, Jesus in pity touched their eyes. It's not this pity that treats you as pitiful, it's a compassion. What happens to us? We get calloused to our needs and other needs, and we get complacent around our own needs and others' needs, but not Jesus. His mercy is full of compassion. And He touches them, and He heals the helpless parts of them. But notice how it ends. It says they followed Him. They followed Him. Do we think that these guys are going to be perfect from now on? No. Not at all. But what they are giving is an invitation to a new kind of life. And we remember this because we know where Jesus is walking. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. They will have other ailments. They will die. So what we're looking at here is not the final healing. 
But what we're looking at here is a real inbreaking of the kingdom that shows us that we have a king who does heal, who can heal, who will heal, who will go to the cross, who will bear the sins of the world in our place, who will take upon himself evil and suffering and death, but who will rise from the dead so that we now can have the confidence to follow him even when our whole life is a cry of mercy. You see, encountering God's mercy is not a transactional moment. It's a life of many moments, of many manifestations of mercy that sometimes look like having your eyes healed where you can see and other days look like passing through physical death. But they will know Jesus as this son of David crucified and risen. And this is the only way that we can come honestly and ask, hear him ask us the questions, where are we, and respond honestly. To ask him, hear us ask, what do you say, what do you want from me, and us actually respond honestly, is we've got to trust his heart. We've got to trust his heart, or we will not, it's just too much. We've got to know that he sees us, he stops for us, he cares for us. And so he asked us, who do you say that I am? If you need a few ways to think about that, you might think, who do you say that I am as father? Who do you say that I am as son? Who do you say that I am as Holy Spirit? We will only be able to follow Jesus into this mission of mercy and the meaning that our lives give mercy if we can do justice with these questions. And another way we can do it is just flip them upside down and then ask them to God in light of this last question. So he asks you, where are you? What do you want me to do for you? And who do you say that I am? Now, ask him. To have the faith to look to him in prayer and say, God, where are you? And through the word and the spirit, let him answer that question. To look to him and say, what do you seek, God? What do you want for me? And then to ask him, who do you say that I am? And as we hear God answer those questions, we know it's his voice we're hearing when it's the voice of mercy, of compassion. That's shaped like a cross. You see, mercy may look like the boring choice, but it's the only way to a life of meaning, of mission. But we've got to decide what choice are we going to make. It's scary to give up and lean ourselves wholly on the mercy of God. But there's a choice before us. Where are you? Who do you say? What do you want for me to do for you? And who do you say that I am? May we find meaning in our messy lives by clinging to mercy. And even now as we come to the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We pray now as we come to the table that you would help us, Lord, to taste and see that you are good. We receive the bread as your body broken for us. We receive the cup as your blood shed. And we take it together in faith, hope, and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.